This is going to be a fantastic episode, man, because if someone <laughs> if, if someone just listens in through the transcription or something, or everyone who's looking up dispensary is also yes. going <laughs> to this show because the word grass just got mentioned 400 times. <laughs> Welcome to the Two Authors Chat Show, an entertaining podcast with two best-selling authors, Connecting readers with an eclectic array of distinguished guests through lively conversation and interviews. Hosted by mystery suspense and thriller writers, Douglas Pratt and Nicholas Harvey. Welcome aboard, everyone. Thanks for joining our show. Uh, hope you are having a great week. How you been doing, Nick? What are you up to? I've been busy writing. Because we're authors. Uh, that's, that's Yeah, that's what we tend to do. I'm in the middle of uh, Burning Summer, which is the, uh, the latest. It'll be book four in the Nora Summer series. I'm loving the hell out of writing, uh, writing that. Nora's a, a lot of fun to pen. I'm at that point now where I'm a third of the way into the book and I'm fully immersed in, uh, in her world and thinking like a 19-year-old, uh, I think she's 20 years old now, uh, Norwegian blonde. <laughs> at least that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> So I've got that going on, Priceless. I'm working on with Don Rich and Deborah Brown, uh, and that's been going back and forth quite a bit. Faceless, which we'll talk about with our guest, AJ Stewart, is coming my way hopefully any day soon from Chris Niles. Then you and I have Missing in the Keys going back and forth. So I'm expecting a chapter from you very soon. What are you working on? Well, hopefully very soon Missing in the Keys, but uh, right now <laughs> I'm on this downhill run right now. Like, you know, when you're a kid and you're running downhill and you just build up all this speed. Uh, that's kind of the way I feel right now, finishing up uh, Havana Sunrise. <laughs> I always fell on my face when I do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't read the book yet. It might, it might be that way. So. <laughs> By the time this uh, this comes out, it, it will have, it launches on uh, March 1st. So, yes, I'm just I'm loving the story. It's a lot of cat and mouse chases through Havana. It's a little bit different storytelling from my side. Not a lot different. There's still a lot of killing and fighting and Chase gets into some adventures. <laughs> so that's just a fun. And I'm, I'm about two two days of writing just to get it finished and then run through some edits and stuff and send it off to my editor. Also, we've got uh, Shameless coming out, which is, uh, it comes out on the 28th of of February, so at this point it'll already be out. But uh, it's the other collaboration we're doing, uh, like your Faceless and Priceless, with uh, several tropical authors. Um, it's going to be amazing. It's so much fun to do. So it kind of ties into what we're talking today about with collaborations. So absolutely. So we can actually jump ahead to one of the questions that we had because uh, then you and I can talk about our Green Wolf uh, thriller series, which yes. is Missing in the Keys, the first book of. And uh, Rosemary Kenny in the UK, who uh, I think Rosemary sent us some other questions. She's, she's good on the questions. So her question is, how do you decide on what topic to write your books together? We had a lot of back and forth. Um, that's the great thing about writing uh, with you has been so much fun because we you know, normally, like I have an idea, I just throw it to myself and you know, I think it's a good idea because it was my idea. So <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to be able to toss it to you. And we talk about it being a football, you know, I toss it to you and, and seeing, uh, you know, hearing back that you, you think it's a good idea. Or sometimes it's, uh, hey, I think this is a good idea, but what if we do this? And I think that makes it even better because we have two of us who are very creative thinking about it. So I think the big thing was we met, well, we'd met in the Keys when you came down with Ashley um, just off a cruise ship, I think. 
a year ago. It was almost yeah. a year ago today. So, Golly, yeah. So we met for the first time and hit it off pretty good. And then we were both at Nink together and we talked about it there and, and, and discussed we've got to do something together. And then when we drove across country later in, in 2022, we stopped by and spent like three days with you. And you and I sat down for a couple of those days and um, started the novel. And we chatted back and forth. But I think it was it was relatively easy to pick out what we were going to do. We wanted to do a mystery thriller. It was pretty easy. We both just decided what characters we wanted to do, which uh, I landed on a female English and you (laughs) landed on a young American. But I think the characters, they're both a little broken. There's a great backstory to it. It snowballed pretty quick, if I remember correctly. And I mean, we were writing the uh, opening chapters and I was slayed by your opening chapter, which is actually a flashback scene which will tie in later in the book, but it starts with a bang. It's pretty cool. Oh, I like it. Yeah. It, it's, it's so much fun. So cool. Do we have another question in there? Ah, yes, we do. It's uh, from Lynn Sheridan in the UK. And this one is too good not to use. I got to tell you, it's, it's a little off topic, but would you rather fight a horse sized duck or 30 duck sized horses? <laughs> that is too good not to use. Um, wow. Um, a duck the size of a horse. I'd be terrified of being smacked in the noggin with a bill from a duck that big. I think I'd have to fight off the the little horses because they'd be ankle-high horses. I think I could keep them at bay. They can't fly, so they can't jump at you. Well, they can jump. They're horses. Well, true, but what are they going to do? <laughs> Smack your, your shin with a hoof? They'd be little tiny hoofs. They'd be like throwing pebbles at you. I think I'd take on the 30 <laughs> duck-sized horses. I think I'm going to disagree. I, I actually own a horse and I've owned chickens, which are, and ducks, and they're kind of the equivalent of ducks, obviously. So I think that 30 of them swamping me would be a lot. I've had three roosters come at me at one time and that was too much. Well, 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 wait. Yeah, but it, it's ducks. It's not roosters. Roosters have pointy bills, so they're worse than ducks. Oh, they're terrifying. Roosters <laughs> yes. can be terrifying. Not like geese. Geese are scary as shit. Yeah, 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 geese are evil, evil, oh. evil. I don't know why, uh, probably because they won't go where you tell them to go, but I, I think uh, a, a platoon of geese would be a terrifying uh, <laughs> thing to see coming over a hill at you. <laughs> Just squawking. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Everyone would throw down their arms and just be, ah, run away, geese. <laughs> on that note, let's move on to talk about a guest this week, AJ Stewart, who's a friend of both of us, and... A co-writer for me on uh, Faceless, which is one of the new tropical author collaborations that's coming out. He's a prolific writer. He's been uh, uh, his Miami Jones uh, series is uh, a bestseller. Um, he does really well with, and he uh, started a new series. The first book is Clearer Waters, which happens to have an English female protagonist who comes over to America. How about that? And uh, she's a diver. So it checked all the boxes for me. I loved it. So, um, yeah, without further ado, let's uh, chat with AJ. Hey, everyone, let's get to our uh, interview section. And we have AJ Stewart, a best selling author and a friend of both Doug and mine. And he's uh, kindly agreed to join us. How are you doing, AJ? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, gents. Uh, thank you. You're a bloody foreigner. Where are you from? Uh, I have been a foreigner most of my life, as it happens, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm originally from Australia. I grew up in Melbourne. I now live in Los Angeles, California. I've been here for 
Ooh, longer than I care to admit, about 10 years, but the United States for about 20. You're an ex-Australian, as Nick Thacker would say. We had Nick Thacker on the other week and <laughs> he referred to someone as an ex-Australian. I said, he's probably still Australian. <laughs> I'm not sure what it, what it takes to become an ex-Australian, but I know that when I watch something on TV, watch sport on TV, it's usually cricket. So I, I, st- I think I probably still count. That definitely does. You, you, In fact, you cannot become an American citizen if you watch cricket. They made me play cricket for a couple of years in school because uh, I went to a bit of a hoity-toity uh, secondary school and I pretty much hated it. That ball comes at you really fast and you think a baseball hurts, you get hit with a cricket ball. Yeah, uh, I have been. <laughs> Many times it, it doesn't tickle. So originally from Australia, now living in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, when did you get into writing? Oh, I think like a lot of people, I've always been a writer. It's just about when did it actually explode out, you know. I think we've all got a lot of stories to tell. You just reach a point where you can't keep them in inside and you either just become really annoying to the people that you love or you put them down on paper. And um, it's a pretty cliched story. I, I had a ninth grade English teacher who fostered creative writing. Uh, he introduced me to it fostered my love of it and um, encouraged me in it. And uh, I think behind every, you know, great writer, there's often a, a great teacher. You know, he, he really encouraged me to do it. And so I became a, a, clo- a, a closet writer, I guess, you know, doing it <laughs> for myself, by myself, never really showing my work to anybody. And it went like that for, for years until I sort of started to tap into any kind of community. So when did you publish your first book? So I published my first book in uh, 10 years ago, actually. The Miami Jones series is, is 10 years old. We're actually just about to release the 10th anniversary edition of the, of the first one, Stiff Arm Steel. Oh, that's cool. What are you going to do for the 10th anniversary edition? So the 10th anniversary, we have produced a special collector's edition of hardcover of the, of the first book, and we're going to be releasing 250 individually numbered copies of that book only 250 nice is that going to be like a hardbound or it's a hardcover jacket hardcover book yeah nice so we've we've had it uh, specially designed it's uh, hopefully about a month from now uh, as we're talking um so probably hopefully uh in mid-march of 2023 uh, 20, what year is it yeah yeah, we'll be getting that out and people will be able to get that from, from our website, which we're also relaunching a new website at that time as well, uh, ajstuart.com. Perfect. That sounds really cool. Yeah, I've been thinking about doing a uh, special edition hardback with a dust cover, so um, off air I'll have to pick I'll your brains a little let bit. You know how it goes. But, uh, yeah. It was just one of those things where we get a lot of – I get a lot of requests for, you know, signed copies and things like that and um, – I've for a long time wanted to be able to offer more from our store, um, from our online store, and it was always a bit of a logistical issue. And uh, But recently my, my son got to an age where I can engage him in very poorly paid labour. That's uh, Yeah, I was going to say engage him. You mean you'll use him as slave labour, yeah. <laughs> I will pay him. It just won't be very good. But uh, he's um, he's going to help me out with the, the the logistics of it all. He's a little bit more into the the computing and websites and 
design and all that kind of thing. So he's, he's looking at that and, and also the fulfilment side of things. So that's something we hope to ramp up during 2023, but we'll be starting with the um, 10th anniversary edition of Stiff Arms. That's Steel. really cool. And do you sell merchandise? I see uh, uh, we can see you. So you're wearing this really cool distressed Miami Jones hat. We did for a bit and then we stopped. We were using a third-party fulfilment thing and it, and it, it was good but not great. And so what we ended up doing, we, we got a, a few different things, uh, hats and koozies, you know, if you put your beer cans in and, and those sorts of things, beach towels, because, of course, we write very beachy kind of books. We've basically been using them as giveaways for readers of my, my monthly newsletter. So, you know, when we launch a book or just because we feel like it, we'll just put a little package together with a book and a hat and whatever and just use it as a giveaway. But Again, people have often said, you know, I'd love to be able to get that for my reader, uh, partner or friend for Christmas or whenever. So it is, it's, again, that's something that we'll be looking at this year because uh, I've got help to do that stuff now. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that's really interesting uh, in your bio is you, you've lived in a ton of different places around the world. So why? Talk us through that. Do you keep, is it because you keep getting thrown out or is there another reason? Yeah, no, I only ever got thrown out of one place and uh, <laughs> and they actually ended up letting me back in because it was actually the United States. But <laughs> I think it's got something to do. I learned recently, I did a I did a program with a, a wonderful lady called Becca Simon. I don't know if you know Becca, but she's around the writing community. She's a, a bit of a writing coach and so on, and I did one of her programs and did a one of those personality tests that that yeah. you know corporate type people do um, with Gallup, and I've done a few of those in my corporate life before I became a writer, and it is kind of eerie, scary how accurate those things are, at least for me. Like they kind of know me exactly. But what I what I found out was that I'm what the Gallup system calls a learner. That's like my primary my primary sort of driver is to learn things. And I've not necessarily a masterer. I don't necessarily need to master <laughs> everything that I do, but I've just, I, I guess I'm an inquisitive person. And one of the great things that Becca did was actually help me understand how that was a positive and a potential negative, what she calls a balcony and a basement in, in her language. And I learned that I just like to know things. So when I write my books, I like to do research, even with the Miami Jones world, which I'm about 17-odd books into it now. I know that world very intimately, but I research the basis of any mystery beforehand. And I was kind of thought, well, maybe you just have to do that or that's part of the process. And I was always concerned that maybe I'd spent too long doing stuff like that because when you're researching, it's a really good writery type type activity that isn't actually writing. And you end up (laughs) just a down rabbit hole learning about something that was connected to something that was connected to something that was on point. And, you, you know, it's a big time sink. And she helped me understand that, yes, that is true. It can be. And you need to be mindful of that. But you also need to recognize that the kinds of, when I write my books, I drop these little nuggets of information into the story. <clears throat> Sometimes they're really deep and meaningful and important, uh, life-changing little nuggets of information, but usually they're just pieces of garbage trivia and people will just go, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> no. yeah. But she helped me realize that the kinds of readers who enjoy my books 
are like me, inquisitive people. They love to get those little nuggets of information as I write. So I think going back to the point of where I've lived, I I think over the years I've I've come to realise that I've moved around a lot because when uh, there are just a lot of places I haven't been and a lot of things I'd like to experience and a lot of people I'd like to meet. Moving around the world, you know, I, I left, pretty much left Australia not too long after I finished university and I went to Europe and spent several years, you know, wandering around Europe. I worked in London for several years. I was fortunate enough to work in Norway for a little while. I worked in Japan for a little while. Uh, I went back to Australia, but not my hometown. I was in Sydney for a few years and then I came to the United States and I've I've been all over the US. I've been in San Francisco. I've been in New York. I've been in Florida and now in LA. And I think my eagerness to move, the the US moves have mostly been driven by my wife who works in the film industry. So it's um, been driven by her. But I'm always happy to go because it means that there's a new place that I get to explore and learn about. And I think that's it, it would appear, <laughs> the data would suggest that that's been a major driver in, in my life. That's interesting. Yeah, Becca Symes, actually, uh, we referenced her. She was on another podcast, which I referenced in, a, in an earlier show. She was talking about intuitive writing on this particular podcast, Joanna Penn's uh, podcast, The Creative Pen, which is a great show. Uh, Joanna does a super job with it. And um, Becca Symes was super interesting. Uh, on that. And she was at Nink, I think, but we missed her when she, I didn't get to, to meet her while we were there, but this year we'll definitely have to do that. So Yeah. Her, I, I actually saw her session at Nink a few years ago and um, I did her, one of her programs that she offers not long after. She's a very, very nice person and a very interesting process. It can be difficult when you're writing in, because we work so much in isolation that it's sometimes hard to pin down a metric and I'm a very, again, this is, she's taught me this, I'm a very process-driven person and I never really thought I was but I am. The, the evidence is incontrovertible on this fact. I'm quite process-driven and I, I like metrics. I like to be able to, to know how am I tracking, where am I going. And when you're in a job, you know, whether you've put five widgets together or you closed three deals or you sold two TVs, it doesn't really matter but there's some kind of metric by which you can be judged, for better or worse, to be honest. But for me, it's usually better because I just like to know where I stand with these things. And when we're writing, people say, how's it going? Well, if I'm actually typing the words out, I have a word count. And I can use that as a metric and say I need to get X number of words done each day based on when the delivery date is for a particular book. But for me, the actual typing of the story is not the lion's share of the process. The lion's share of the process is the planning and the plotting and the thinking. And that can take five, ten times longer than the actual typing. And when I'm doing that, I have no metric. What is a good day today? Oh, I thought a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I made pages of notes. Uh, I, I need to tell my wife that one. I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm just, I'm just thinking right now. This is work. It's work. The football on the TV is not the point of why I'm sitting here on my lounge chair. <laughs> I am thinking in repose. It's a very writerly thing. Um, you know I love that I love the idea that as writers we're we're allegedly allowed to get away with garbage like that but of course the bottom (laughs) line is is that you know that if you do that for too long you just don't get anything done you don't get any books out and 
whether or not you, you plot the beginning or you pants it and, and go through and maybe hit writer's block or whatever, there is always an opportunity for us to find anything to do except the work that which we must be doing. And I've struggled with that because of that long period where there, there is no real metric of what, what I was doing. And again, it was something that I, that I helped, that Becca helped me understand was that I, I thought maybe I needed to compress that time that I needed to, you know, there are these people who put out a book a month and, and what have you. And it's like those people think differently than I do. They work differently than I do. And they put out different work than I do. And there's a place for it if that's your thing. But for me, I had to come to the realisation, yeah, definitely I can compress my my thinking time. And, yes, sitting in front of cricket is probably not the place to do my thinking about a private investigator <laughs> in Florida. But... I, I also realised that there's a there's a period of germination of um, just sitting in the manure, as it were, just letting something that isn't yet growing get ready to grow. And so I've I've kind of the good thing about that was I I started to give myself a break, you know, cut myself a break and just say, no, dude, it's okay. If you've got the TV on, you're probably wasting time, so turn it off. But if you're sitting in your office and you're staring at a whiteboard that's completely blank and nothing is happening, that's okay because something is happening. And then if you scribble a whole bunch of meaningless garbage on said whiteboard and then you go for a walk on the beach, the walk on the beach is valid because we need time away from work. And this is not just for writers, this is for anyone. You need time away from work for your subconscious brain to figure out the stuff that the the rest of your brain just doesn't have any clue about working out. And whether we do that in sleep or, you know, lying on the couch or we need to to do it, I I call it active nothingness. (laughs) That's a technical term now, isn't it? (laughs) I like sitting in manure myself, but that's... I try to keep that to a minimum. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I just think I've come to recognise that there are certain things that I can do that look like I'm doing those non-writing, writey things like, oh, you, you think you're, you're working, but you're not really. And you're also not letting your subconscious brain do their thing either. You're actually doing time-wasting activities <laughs> as opposed to the forced activities, which are you're, you're in your office, you're doing the work, you're putting stuff on whiteboards and index cards and in your computer you're thinking through plot lines and characters and such, and that's all important. And then getting away from that and sitting in your garden, listening to the birds. I mean, all this sounds very, you know, esoteric, but I was going to use a completely different word there, but I won't. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just <clears throat> that helped me a lot um, going through that process because I could get down on myself during this period of no metrics until I realised that, okay, no, there's, there's a time for all of it. You just have to recognise which of those activities are, are truly wasting time? And Netflix is probably one of those. <laughs> probably. probably. That's, that's good. Can I ask you a question? We talk about research here, and I'm curious. I mean, I, I love research, and I know Nick here is, we love rabbit holes as well. But um, what is the most fascinating or disturbing piece of research you found while you're researching a book? That happens on almost every book for me. I find something because I think what happens is, this happens for every book, but I'll use my main series, my Amy Jones series, as an example. It's He's a PI. He's in Florida. He's a former professional baseball player. Okay? It's a very basic plot, you know, character 
we understand him uh, very easily. It's first-person book, so we're inside his head a lot. Where I tend to do the research is that each of his mysteries are in or around the world of a particular sport because that's kind of his bent. That's the way he sees the world through a, a lens of a former sports athlete. So what I tend to do is I do research on those sports. and I, I enjoy watching sports, so I know a, a little bit about a lot of sports, but I don't know a lot about necessarily all those sports. And I'm also really drawn to, A, sports that don't make it onto TV, and, B, the aspects of those sports that we don't think about. So I like to get in. So I did, for example, I did a book uh, two or three books ago in that series. It was called Big Thor. And it was about uh, the launch of a new stadium in West Palm Beach in Florida that housed a new ice hockey team, or as they say here, hockey team. I grew up with hockey being played on grass, but here it's played on ice. And even in Florida, it's played on ice. Who knew? It's going to be the craziest place on on the planet to want to play ice hockey, but then Tampa went and won the whole thing. So (laughs) who knows? So I created this this world and this, this ice hockey team but rather than looking at, you know, the money and the training and the players and stuff, the story kind of revolves around the guy who maintains and makes the ice because that, to me, opens up a lens at this thing that we all know, which is ice hockey. And even people who don't really know hockey know hockey. They know what it is. They know they skate around at a 1,000 miles an hour chasing after something that you can't see. And they call it a puck, but I don't believe it actually exists. and I'll be looking at it through the lens of this this other uh, slightly off camera kind of kind of person, and I like to do that with all of those stories. There's not a lot of my stories that come through the most obvious route, which is oh the, the star player, the quarterback player, or the the, the hero um, basketball player. And so that means that I have to do research because I could probably write a book about ice hockey, but I don't know much about how they cultivate the ice. So I would dig down into, well, how do they cultivate ice? And what you do is you tunnel and tunnel and tunnel until you hit a point that is, I now know more about this subject than any (laughs) human should know. (laughs) Or you hit exactly what you said, Doug, which is I hit the disturbing point, which is, okay, that is a little bit scary. And on both counts, we then pull back a little bit and start looking for the information that we can drop in because in the end, it's going to be a total of about five or six paragraphs or even sentences throughout the book where that information actually colours the world rather than drives the story. I I wrote, uh, I think number six in the series was around golf and, again, it was through the eyes of the caddies and through the eyes of the greenskeeper and, once again, I went down a rabbit hole and I can tell you some stuff about grass that would curl your hair. Oh, my God. And the cultivation of grass and what these people do with this grass. And it is mind-boggling. And I put like, I maybe put two months of research. I actually redid my yard after I did this. (laughs) 
study of, of grass oh my God. Um, because I had the wrong type of grass for a Southern California climate. And um, it's, it's like Florida grass is not the same as California grass because in Florida it rains a lot, especially in Southern California. So you have the, you know, a different kind of leaf anyway. We're not going to go there. I'm not going to bore <laughs> you with that. But that's what, that's what happens is you end up, and I end up two months of study on grass and I put in like three lines about the grass because the greenskeeper starts talking about the grass to our main character Miami and Miami's kind of glaze-eyed looking at him going, why do I care about this grass? But the other guy, the greenskeeper, is loving it because somebody wants to hear about his flipping grass. This is going to be a fantastic episode, man, because if someone <laughs> if, if someone just listens in through the transcription or something or everyone who's looking up dispensary is also yes. going to find this show because the word grass just got mentioned 400 times. <laughs> well, I have a friend who lives, who's Australian, who lives in uh, Atlanta and he wanted to decorate, he lives in one of those gated communities where there are a lot of rules about what you can and cannot do with your yard, your house and whatever. And he wanted to put some planters around his front doorstep. So he went, did the right thing. He went to the HOA and he said, is it okay if I put some pot plants on my on my front doorstep? <laughs> and this then started a whole chain of emails that went here, there and everywhere. And they were trying to find a way to say no without saying no because they just could not believe the audacity of this guy who wanted to grow pot, pot. <laughs> on his front lawn. And it took a whole month of emails back and forth before my friend realised that in Australia we call pot plants, but in the US they're called potted plants. Potted plants, secret. Pot yeah. plants is a whole other thing. <laughs> you know, but I see, I see this this whole meeting where there's there's some people who are like, but maybe we do let them do it. The other's yeah. like, no, we can't. And he goes, but maybe we do. Yeah. <laughs> if he can do it, what about me? Right. Why can't we all grow it? <laughs> yeah. So as I told you at the beginning, <laughs> before we went on air, we have a subject and a theme, but we rarely actually get very far into it. <laughs> That's all good. So let's circle back and touch on uh, c- collaborations because uh, you and I are actually collaborating currently on a project with a couple others. It's a tropical authors uh, novel for that uh, group, tropicalauthors.com. If, uh, if uh, anyone hasn't heard of it, uh, you'll find a whole bunch of authors in similar genres to, uh, to ours. And we're doing a, a project called uh, Faceless, which you kicked off and did the opening sector for. And now you've had to give up your baby <laughs> to three other idiots who are going to do what with it. You don't know. So, and as a, you know, when we did the, uh, we did a Zoom call with all of us and chatted about it and ch- talked about a story and kind of came up with a, uh, an idea of a story. And then you made it very clear that you are an intense plotter and needed to go away and, and go through this process that uh, you just described. So talk about that a little bit, <laughs> not necessarily coming up with the first part of it, but then handing it off. <laughs> How does that work in your, in your mind, you know, when you have to let go? It actually works really easily for, for two reasons. One is that I did my due diligence <laughs> before <laughs> I agreed to do it, and I read books by all you guys, and you're all great writers. You tell great stories. Well, thank and you. You must have read somebody else's, not mine. No, 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 no. <laughs> False modesty will only get you so far. The fact is, is that you know you, you guys all write really great books, and like the the Nora Summers character 
really resonates with me. You know, we were talking off air about Scandinavian people and, and they're a little bit different and they, they think a little bit different and I've lived and worked there and they're, they're hard to get to know but once you get to know them, they're solid. They are just the best people and she's that kind of character. She's got a little bit of a dark edge to her. And so anyway, I did my, I, I love those books and um, I've read all of them now. So I, I went into it, first of all, having done some due diligence, going, okay, I want to make sure that we're not going to uh, end up with one section of this book just going completely downhill. Once I was <laughs> confident in that, the rest came really easy because I don't know whether it's my age or I've just I've been doing this enough now that constructive criticism is something that I believe is an inherently important part of our process. And so I'm more than happy to give it, but I'm also more than happy to receive it. And having got a level of confidence in what the quality of the work that you guys were going to do, I realised that the rest is letting your imaginations go where they were going to go letting a story, I only have to plot my bit because that's how I get the work done. It doesn't speak to how anybody else gets the work done. And if you want to just let your imagination go go crazy, I actually think this is the, the perfect vehicle for it. It's it's almost like there's, a, there's no downside to it. Just go crazy, let it go because what I've realised is that my crazy, and I, we all write, you know, tropical-style books and I, I, my character spends a lot of time in Florida. There's nothing I can write about Florida that's more crazy than Florida. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Completely true, yeah, very much so. I have to sort of check my books and look at them and think, would that really happen? And I'm like, dude, Florida. It's Florida. I've had, in the early days, had people say, well, I don't know if that had happened, and I just used to send people a link you know, yep. <laughs> to, to a Florida man article. Yeah, no, a guy did that or something similar. Like, it's Florida. So I, I think this is a perfect vehicle to let that go. And our crazy is probably a little bit less crazy than what we think it is and that it ends up just being fun. And what we're trying to write with that book, I think, is a, is a rollicking good read, for want of a better term. So I think, you know, we just... Just go at it. So the interesting part for me was, of course, that I was writing a quarter of a book. I had to leave basically everything open for Chris to do the next bit, but then I also had to tie up a little bit my section. But then I kind of, what the way I looked at it was instead of a three-act structure, let's call it a four-act structure or a five-act structure where each of the four of us write an act that ends in a crescendo but not doesn't answer all the questions and that is your basic ending of the first act of a, of a, of a show or a film or, or a book. And we have five acts where we've each got four sections and then we've got the finale, which will be the culmination of the entire story. So I found it interesting in that I used my exact same process. I went through the same process that I always did. I just didn't get to the point where I tied up any of the, the loose ends, which I've got some ideas about how they should end, but I just had to say to myself, okay, I'm not going to get to do that <laughs> and palm it on. And as I said, because I've done my due diligence, I, I, I was very comfortable with just passing it on and letting it go. It's a neat process. Obviously, I've done a few now. Doug has done um, uh, Shameless, which will be coming out later this month. 
with Chris too. Yeah, Chris, Chris Niles uh, is on that one. one. Yes. Yeah, and I've done a couple with uh, Graceless and Timeless with uh, Wayne Stinnett, John Cunningham, and uh, Nick Sullivan, who Nick is uh, also doing Faceless with us, which. Uh, one of the interesting things about Faceless is um, the reason why it's actually these four authors involved is we all write female protagonists that have scuba diving involved in their stories in some way, shape, or form. And your Clearer Waters uh, novel, which I absolutely loved and has a lot of similarity with with a mixture of what I've written and and actually a mixture of what I'm currently writing with Doug because we're uh, collabing on a on a new series, the Green Wolf series. So it's it's got diving throughout it, which puts it in tropical climates, which moves it around the Caribbean, which uh, uh, there's so many uh, boxes it, it, it checks that uh, make it exciting, I think, for me and for, for the others involved. It's really cool. I think it's going to be fun. I think it'll be a really fun fun beach read. Um, I'm looking forward to well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah. You know, you have that me strange thing where I'll often take a book and put it away for a period of time, especially if it's something new, like you spoke about the Clearer Waters book. I wrote that and I don't think I looked at it for about another nine months. I went off and wrote, you know, another Miami Jones or something. The Miami ones, because I've spent so much time in that world, I just I just write them and then we go through the process of critiquing them and editing them and all that stuff. But there's no process where we need to, I was going to use another manure reference, but I'm really not going to. <laughs> I'll, I'll just let them sit and then I'll come back to them. I don't need to do that with him, but with that one, especially anything new that I, I like to do that because it, you get to come back at it almost like a reader. And it, it might be me. I might have a goldfish brain, but it scares me how often I'll go back and start reading a book as if I've never read this before. Oh, I forget all the time what I've written. I, I forget all the time. Once I'm done with it, that book is out of my head. It's so gone and I'm ready to move on to the next story. So I didn't do audio books for a while for my first <laughs> uh, probably half dozen. And then audio, you know, someone convinced me that audio was going to be a big thing. And we started going back in the back catalogue from number one and started slowly getting them done. I was writing the new ones at least as quickly, if not quicker, than we were getting the audiobooks done. So the gap was getting bigger. So we then decided to come at both ends and keep doing one of the ones we hadn't done yet and then every new one gets one on launch so that we can slowly close that gap. And I think we've got about three or four left in the series and then we'll have everything in audio. And um, Paul Heitch, who's my, who, who I work with, who's the actor who does the um, – does the audiobooks. He's fantastic. He he will do his work and then he will send it to me. Now, he, his whole production schedule is they check it, they go through it, they do all that stuff. So I don't feel the need to listen to the whole book for errors or anything like that. It's like no, he, his, his team are real pros. But I will just go through each chapter just to make sure that the chapter orders of the files are all correct and things like that. And it's scary the number of times that I'll click it and then start listening to the first bit of the chapter and then find that I'm at the end of the chapter and I've listened to the whole thing as if I'd never heard this story before. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. And, I mean, it's a, different, it's a different medium. So it's a different experience to listen to a book than it is to read it. Oh, big time. Um, yeah, um, time. And you get a he, – he's a, he's a great well, – he's a great actor. So he's a, 
his bit onto the story that I've created and making it something new and something fresh. I just get sucked in by the way he does does his work. But the, it's as if I'd never never heard the story or read the story, which of course I sort of haven't because writing it is a is a different totally thing, different. isn't it? It's totally different Absolutely. from just having read it. I had a reader just recently who who asked me, well, I didn't like the way you ended Runaway Tide, which is my fourth book. Now I'm on my ninth book now. I was like, I don't remember how I ended it. Yeah, right. I have to no. go. I was like, how did it happen? How did, what do we do? So like, I had someone say to me, hey, I like this aspect of this particular book. And I'm like, which book was that? What happened yeah. in that book? And I, I, it's funny that we were having the conversation we had before because their explanation of which book it was Oh, it's the one about the grass. <laughs> <laughs> Not about golf or the mystery. It's about grass. It's the one about, about grass. grass. That's funny. So I've uh, Kim Breton does my audio books and I started late on my AJ series and I stay current on the Nora series because we started right away. I've done exactly the same thing. So we're trying to catch up and she's so busy, it's hard to catch up. And uh, so we're about halfway through now. But I would do the QC, listen through checks, and I was absolutely crap at it, terrible at listening because I just sit there and I start getting absorbed in the story. And anyone listening may, uh, to this may think that we're being arrogant in saying, oh, I really like to listen to my own books. It's not that. It's not that at all. I get absolutely lost in Kim's presentation of it. And it was so long ago. It's, it's great because it starts reminding me of this story. And yeah, I wrote it, but it's not fresh in my mind. So it's like I'm hearing this new story again. So I just get lost in it. So now my wife does the QC on the audio books because I just sit there and listen to it and I forget to note down anything that needs noting. <laughs> oh, I'm a terrible editor. Yeah, I can't terrible, edit my own work at all. Oh, I, yeah. I, get, I get lost. And I'd be a terrible editor of anyone's work, to be honest, because I, I get wrapped up in the story. Yeah, you just read, um, right? You just listen or read. I stop yeah. reading the words and yeah. start reading the story. And that that's not a great quality of an editor. So we'd love to go on and on, but we better wrap it up. And Doug has a little trick that he likes to do, which is uh, fun for us to watch. And hopefully it's entertaining for people to listen to where we're going to pick one, one final question from our wheel of 10. Well, and before we do that, do, uh, does uh, AJ, do you have anything you want to promote? Any, any new books coming out? Uh, well, no, I mean, we've got the uh, 10th anniversary edition of Stiff Arm Steel, which will be coming out in March, and um, people will be able to find out about that at ajstuart.com. That ajstuart.com website will be launched around about the same time. I've actually spent the last 10 years using ajstuartbooks.com because somebody had AJ Stewart, some guy in Scotland somewhere, and uh, he recently relinquished it, and I'm not going to go into that story. But, um, (laughs) uh, you know, we gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. (laughs) And... uh, so, um, so ajstuart.com will, will launch and we'll be launching uh, the store with um, with the 10th anniversary edition of Stiff Arm Steel, which will be, as I say, a collector's edition signed and numbered. And Below the Belt was the most recent release in the Miami series, right? Yeah, the last one on Amazon, people will find it uh, there and everywhere, is um, Below the Belt. That's the last Miami Jones uh, story. And they'll also see the pre-order for the next one, which is uh, Making the Drop, which takes place in and about the world of surfing in South Florida. When you do a motorsport background one, give me a shout. I might be able to steer you a little bit there. Yeah, I wish I had a name when I did my right turn. Oh, that has it in there? Oh, shit. I, uh, <laughs> I haven't read that one yet. I've read into the, a few into the Miami Jones series uh, 
but I can't wait for the next one uh, with Samantha. Yeah, that'll be the next cab off that rank. Will be. I've already plotted part of that story out. Uh, the Miami next Miami is uh, slowly wrapping up. Uh, then we have a few months of good things like editing and cleaning up and whatnot. And then uh, during that time, uh, while my wonderful editing team is doing their their magic and turning my dross into, I hope diamonds, <laughs> I'll be uh, yeah getting back into into Sam Waters' world. Excellent, excellent, Doug, spin that sucker. All right, so we have a wheel. It's our final question for you. So, so this question is AJ. What is what or what has been in your life your worst job? My worst job. It would probably. Oh, jeez. I've had a lot of jobs, but they've mostly been pretty good, to be honest. Um, I've been pretty lucky, but. I guess the toughest one was maybe the first one, which was I was like 12 years old and my dad said, it's time to go and get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Kids don't do that anymore. I know I'm going to sound like an old fogey. Kids today, they don't know any value of work. But I worked at a football stadium selling meat pies to the punters out in the stands. I used to carry a tray of pies as a very short, underdeveloped 12-year-old. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that was a, a, an experience. I'll, I'll just put it that way. There were a lot of people who try to take advantage of a 12-year-old with the money and the paying and trying to sneak one off the side. The funny thing about humanity is that for every one person who's like that, there's another person who'll call them on it. And yep. I had so many situations where someone was giving me huge amounts of grief and somebody else would say, wait, he's 12, pull your head in. And it's, that, that kept me going. So not, not a nightmare of a job, but it was, it was hard. Some days at the football there'd be like 87 people in the stadium because it was two terrible teams on a wet, windy <laughs> Melbourne day. <laughs> There was a minimum that they had to pay you even if you didn't sell anything, but it was like a dollar or two and um, you'd come home wringing wet, <laughs> uh, you know, and um, tired as and you'd have, you'd have a, a couple of dollar, dollar notes to because I used to still have dollar notes back then, you know, in your pocket, which I would then go with my mother to the, to the chemist shop, to the drugstore, which was the outlet of the bank with your little passbook and put my $2 into the bank, you know, <laughs> uh, so that I didn't blow it <laughs> on what, you know, I don't know what I was going to blow two bucks on, but, yeah. So that, that was that was an interesting an interesting job, yeah. But I, I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed with the opportunity to work all over the world and, and work, you know, for some good people, some indifferent people, but every job that I've had is, has been an adventure. So... I hope the next one, whatever that is, is as big an adventure as this one. Yeah, well, we love the job you're doing now. So uh, we'll have to get you back on some other time and talk some. I've got a million questions, especially about Norway and travel and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, well, you have to think up a different theme for the next. Uh... Well, yeah, well, we pull them out of our ass about five minutes before the show, so it shouldn't be <laughs> yeah, I was say, yeah, we, yeah, <laughs> We're very lax around here, so, yeah. <laughs> 
And I think this is a great point to leave off because I don't know about everyone else, but I'm picturing a little 12-year-old AJ Stewart in a, in a, in a really weird little uniform with meat pies hanging around his neck. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being on, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to subscribe to the show. Give us a review, preferably a good one, please. And and check out the show notes for the links to our books, social media. We'll throw in uh, AJ's links, um, plus anything else we might have mentioned during our show. Don't forget, we don't have a Patreon, so the only way to support our show is to buy or gift our books to other people. And on our next episode, which will be titled Going Nuts, uh, we'll be (laughs) Yeah, it's very pro. Could be about a lot of things. Uh, But we'll be discussing balancing work and home in an attempt to remain sane (laughs) with our guest, former pro hockey player who's been hit in the head multiple times. He turned his career around into being a NASCAR pit crew coach. Uh, His name's Sean Pete, and he's also the co-author of a leadership book called The 12 Second Culture. And so I'm excited about that. He's a a pretty interesting guy. And actually, it's good timing for me because I'm about to fly to Miami and uh, have my my head examined for a week. (laughs) (laughs) So new episodes out every two weeks, guys. And uh, until the next one, be cool to each other. And fair winds and following seas. You've been listening to the Two Authors Chat Show with Nicholas Harvey and Douglas Pratt.